Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. We are here in the Valencia Corridor at west of Pecos, as I've been uh, corrected. Happily obliging. Uh, I don't want to mess up anybody's brand. Uh, speaking of brands, the next uh, panel that we're going to have here as part of the Culture Collide San Francisco Creative Summit is the Bands and Brands panel. That's going to be moderated by the main man himself, Alan Miller from Culture Collide. Man, I just can't spit that out. I'm, I'm horrible with that. <laughs> uh, we are also going to have Evan Dudley of Mission Workshop, Lauren Livingood from Plume, Mustafa Sheikh from Boombotics, and Matthew Titel from Leap Motion. That's coming up just shortly. It actually looks like we're uh, they're ready to go. I'm just going to go through a couple of the songs that we've been hearing here just so people know what they're listening to. Uh, that last song we heard was Strawberry Letter 23 by the fantastic local San Francisco band A Million Billion Dying Sons. You heard them now. Check them out when you can. Fantastic on record. Fantastic live. We traveled back in times to the emo 90s with Sunny Day Real Estate, the song In Circles off of Diary. Uh, before that, we heard Boys in Her Fan Club uh, by Sweet Apple, which features, uh, amongst other people, Mr. Jay Maskus on guitar. And then we uh, kicked everything off with a band that once again no longer exists, and that would be Guided by Voices with Teenage FBI off of Do the Collapse. Um, we are just ready now to hand things over to the panel. Once again, you're listening to BFF.FM Best Frequencies Forever. I am Ben from The Crack Machine. And we are live broadcasting from the Culture Collide San Francisco Festival and Creative Summit. Without any more ado, Bands and Brands and the moderator, Alan Miller. Take it away. Thank you very much. It's, uh, thanks uh, for broadcasting live. We appreciate it. Thanks for everyone for coming out to West of Pecos. Uh, this is the really exciting panel right between burritos and beer. So, uh, does everyone up here have a beer who needs one? Does anyone have to go back to work? I'll, I'll take another one. All right. Jeff, where's Jeff? Jeff, there you go. I'll All take right. one too, Jeff. <laughs> we, we, we've had a few last-minute changes here on our brands and bands panel, so I wanted everyone here to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about what they do, and uh, we can dive into some very exciting conversations. They want to start off right here to my left. Yeah, my name is Mustafa. I'm from uh, Boombotics. We make uh, ultra-portable speakers. Um, and yeah, recently we rolled out a collaboration with Wu-Tang Clan, um, which is, I think, how I ended up on this panel. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a pretty exciting collaboration. Just uh, We're actually embedding songs from their latest album onto one of our portable speakers, um, and we're releasing that speaker before the album is released. So it's a pretty exciting project, and it's definitely... Uh, a new way that uh, a brand and a band has been able to figure out how to merchandise their music. 
Hey, my name is Matt Titel. I work at Leap Motion, and we do um, we do this make this device that tracks your hands. And what I do there is I, I do some creative uh, applications um, that have to do with music and art and that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, my background is in synthesis and making synthesizers for uh, different people and working for different companies. Um, yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> uh, and I am not Evan Dudley. I am uh, Morgan Meredith from uh, Mission Workshop uh, and Acre. Uh, I just started there a couple months ago, but I've been a long-time uh, fan of the brand. Um, we've done a couple, or actually we've only done one kind of music collaboration um, that we actually worked on with the Culture Collide crew, but we plan on doing a, a couple more like it, so I'm guessing that's why I'm here as well. Great. Uh, so, yeah, so Morgan, tell us about, you know, we, we did a little bit of the collaboration with Tyco, and, 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 and I thought this was a really, a really cool idea for a brand to go and actually produce content in a way that is, is such a fine line on advertising and content, but what was created from that whole program was such a cool thing, I think. No, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> so for those that don't know, we basically did a uh, photo and video series basically following uh, Tyco on uh, on tour, um, showing the products you know in use on the road. Um, you know the, the end result is really cool. Um, you know we did a story with with Culture Collide as well, but um, I think what's really great about it uh, about us being able to do that specifically is that it, it, it's an, an ability to show off the things that we like um, and the the, the kind of uh, things we appreciate aside from the products that we make. It just gives us another opportunity, a different channel to kind of um, express ourselves, um, which I think is, is kind of the, the value of being able to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, and for all the, the people listening as well, if you ever get a chance to pick up the book or to see the book, I think it's still available on the Mission Workshop site. Yep, still available on the site, and uh, the... Um, there, there's kind of a nice little landing page for it as well on Mission Workshop where you can get music, um, the book, you know, all the products that were used on the trip, uh, the video, all that kind of stuff. So it's a nice little, it's a nice little package deal. Yeah, and the photography is amazing, and you wouldn't even yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel like an advertorial. It feels like a really great travel book. Yeah, exactly. We're definitely along for the ride, which is kind of the way we would prefer to to do something like that. We we, we don't want to have it be a heavy-handed kind of piece. We just want to be yeah. kind of you know, part of the conversation, and we even like not being part of the conversation in something like that. You know, we don't need the Mission Workshop bag on the cover or anything like that. We like it to be a lot more subtle. Not to, not like we're trying to take advantage of anybody, but we just want it to be more, I don't know, natural feeling. Organic. Organic. Well, well done. Yeah. Um, leave motion. I want to put you on the spot a little bit. I want to understand... So you have technology that basically is super cool. Your minority report, you get to throw <laughs> things around with your hands. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. <laughs> how do you see that integrating into a, an artist partnership? I mean, I guess it's the pie in the sky, you could work with anyone, you could do anything. What would show off and cr- show something that was so next level that would blow it all up? Yeah, so, um, so let me start off with, like, let me explain a little bit about the what we do first and then I'll explain uh, how relationships with us and like a company like us could 
uh, benefit both parties. Uh, so we, we do hand tracking, and it's kind of like what you said. It's kind of like Minority Report. You can con- interact with your computer using these, like, waving your hand in the air. Um, and the way we do that is we, like, we have two cameras that look at your hand and, like, figure out where it is in space. And so, uh, yeah, my, my background's in, in music and synthesizers, and so um, something that's really big that I like to work on is, is controlling synths using it. So um, you can imagine, like, controlling a, a... Like, an XY pad could control two parameters, but this is, like, an XYZ pad, and so you can control it in three different uh, deep, three different dimensions, and so um, okay, so that's kind of like that's kind of like the, what the company is and what I what I, I do, um, but uh, what what's really cool about um, about us as a new company is that uh, we want to show off people that use our technology, and so say you're an artist and you like want to do something cool and you're not sure what you want to do and um, you said decide to use Leap Motion for something like to control your synth live in a, in a, at a concert or um, maybe you're DJing and you're controlling, like, you're doing like the crossfades with it or something. Um, what we'll do is we'll just like, we'll promote, we'll promote that because you're using our technology. So it's like really beneficial. Uh, it really benefits both parties because um, one, um, somebody's using our technology. So we're like definitely really proud of that. And you get like free public like we'll push we'll like put on on social networks and like push push that for for you so like really it's it's helping both people um and have you yeah. seen beams by flowrider that like awful infomercial no no what? You, you gotta check it out he's using his hands to do synthesizers and it's a uh it's one of those like late night infomercials that i hope no one's that late watching tv as i am um but yeah, it's a rough one. Definitely check that up on uh, on YouTube. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so tell me tell me about Inspire's Boombotics. Tell me how you put an album in a speaker. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, we actually first went to Riza and we first just were like, "Hey, man, it would be awesome to throw a W on a speaker. We'd sell a lot of them." And he came back with like, "Man, that's been done before. Like, people have been throwing logos." on consumer electronic products like I got this new album coming out A Better Tomorrow our 20th anniversary album let's embed the songs and um, I remember at first I was like that's a really interesting idea like and we actually figured out a way to throw an SD card into the unit um, and embed eight songs from the album um, you know eventually we'll be embedding full albums it's not like a it's not a storage issue it's more of a just a licensing issue and just uh, figuring out enough payment for entire album um but yeah it was it came from him just as a new way to merchandise music um as you know Wu-Tang Clan they are all about finding new methods to make money off their music they had that one-off album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin um I think they'll be dropping details about that in a few months about how they actually plan on doing the auction process but yeah I mean at the end of the day like you know you take your music throw it on Spotify you really don't get that much money what um, so yeah, it's just all about figuring out like how else can you make money if you can't make all your music like tickets, concerts, t-shirts, speakers. Well, is the next step then? Would you put how much music would you put in a speaker? That's a good question. I mean, it's actually like outdated technology um, because you can't actually go out right now and on Mission Street you can actually find a speaker that has embedded SD card, 
right? So like at the end of the day, what are you really trying to do? You're really trying to create a unique experience for a fan, and you're going to make a limited edition experience, and um, it's got to be something that is more valuable than just music I can download and throw onto it. Um, you know, these are this was limited edition. It was like a three thousand run. Um, but I think in the future, what we'll do is also create other collateral, so that way you have more of a awesome. Like I'm a fan. I want a piece of the brand. This will go next to my Wu Tang T-shirt, my Wu Tang concert poster, um, and also I just like throwing other music on as well because it has a W and it looks rad. Cool. So you almost would see it as a merch piece more than an extension of a you know creative product. Um, yeah, I see it more as a merch piece because I mean we have, you know, we definitely have started delving into the idea of like, all right, you know, everyone has their iPhone out their iPhone gets drained on battery, like what is a way for me to toss my music on a continual basis to my speaker so that way I can actually, when my phone dies, my speaker is still around. Um, or what if I want to disconnect from my phone? What if I want to go on this trip, leave my phone at home, and still hold on to my music? So, I mean, I think that's definitely kind of phase two of it. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's merchandising, and um, you know, after it launched, I think it launched two weeks ago, it was covered by Billboard magazine. Everyone picked it up from there. Um, but yeah, like a few other artists have contacts about us. You know, like Ray Kwan, he's coming through in a couple of weeks to talk about a project that he wants to release through it. Um, so it's definitely exciting. I think people see the opportunity. It's awesome. Well, I would ask everyone then on the panel, would you buy, would you buy a speaker right now that had every Wu-Tang song on it? Would that, would that be an ad? Like, pretend you're a, you're a Wu-Tang fan. Like, I, I would think... I would think it's kind of a cool thing because it's always your fallback. Hey, like you said, my phone's dying. This is this. But all of a sudden, I could listen to any, any of these things I wanted and not worry about, oh, I'm getting, not getting a good signal here or something like that. And to clarify, it also has two modes. So you have the music mode, and then you'll also put it into a normal Bluetooth speaker. So you got both options. I would totally buy something like that. I, and I think what's cool about this, too, and as it relates to you and, and even for Mission Workshop, is that it, it announces your brand to people that might not have ever heard of it before, mm-hmm. you know? So people are seek- seeking out that Wu-Tang logo everywhere they go, but they might not have heard of your of your company. So it's just a nice way to kind of show what, you know, what kind of things you guys like. And, you know, you, you get new customers that way. You get kind of a, a better understanding of what you guys are all about with the collaboration with the musician, which I think is kind of a nice, a nice added value kind of piece, you know? Yeah, and I guess the element of curation is really important here because if you're going to go out with that and you're going to get the press you know, and talk about Billboard, that you're going to be associated with Wu-Tang. That's, that's, who you're, that's who you're curation. That's what you love. Similar with Tycho. Exactly. I mean, like, when you look at a guy like that, and the, you know, one of the reasons why the collaboration works so, so well is that because you know, he's a designer himself. Um, he has this kind of touch and aesthetic with everything from his T-shirts to the logos on the, you know, the music and that kind of stuff. He's kind of like a nice brand, and I think that's a, that's one of the reasons why it fit really well, you know, with with the Mission Workshop people. And how much, I guess, as you guys move forward, how much of the, how much of as you identify artists, is it going to be artists specific, or is it genres? How much would you guys say that you would? stay in a specific genre because you feel like that's maybe what your consumers want? I'd say for Mission specifically, it's going to be the artist. Um, the genre, I mean, we have such a diverse um, fan base of, of our products. Um, you know, we wouldn't be able to paint 
you know, we, we wouldn't want to kind of pigeonhole ourselves in, in one way or another, I think. I mean, we could have, you know, a rock band next or, you know, an electronic, another electronic band or whatever. I think it's just, it's just whatever feels right, which is what's kind of cool about it. Yeah, I think for us, it's definitely, you know, I mean, Riz is going to be kind of a, become an A&R, you know, just kind of act as a guy making connections for us. And so he's having multiple genres at the end of the day, like, you know, to be perfectly honest, like when you're a company that takes on venture capital and you're supposed to hit certain goals, like you eventually got to be selling in the likes of Best Buy, Target, Apple, and all these big box stores. So it's definitely about crossing over into like multiple genres and to figure out like, all right, you got your, your rap fan hooked up. Like, what about your rock fan? What about your country fan? Like plenty of Best Buy stores in the South. So definitely got to get the Tim McGraw Boombot version out. <laughs> and that's a very interesting question. And I, I think that it, do you get to a point where you have to, you have to play that game and you've got to look at an artist that's going to be over a certain caliber. Otherwise, as cool as it might be, it's not going to sell the units you guys need. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that was so fascinating is just going through Google Analytics. I mean, Boombotics, like, I think two people in this room know about Boombotics before I started talking. Um, and our traffic on our website was relatively low. And the second it launched, um, the second day, we were, our traffic was 10 times what it usually was, just through Wu-Tang fans. And even now, now that the product has completely sold out, um, and you can't buy it on a website, it's still double what it normally is. So it's definitely exciting partnering with someone like that caliber. And I think it's awesome for small brands like us, small local SF brands, to, to look for those collaborations. Yeah. Well, we've built a business on pairing artists and brands and doing the right things for the right brands. So I think when you definitely, when you've connected and you get the right artist, I mean, that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the goal that you're always trying to set is you admire them, Hopefully they admire you, and you can work together to create something that's pretty amazing. On a leap motion, who's the ideal artist? Uh, well, so, so we're like a new technology company. Uh, it's like kind of, it's so it's more geared toward like experimental uh, artists, people who are trying to do something like really new um, and like different. And so it's it's hard to find like really established artists that are like want to do something like want to take that really crazy leap to do <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> that was unintentional uh, um, take that step <laughs> in the direction of like trying to like putting a bunch of effort into new technology I feel like a lot of like really new artists would do something like that and so I, um, I kind of like par- partnering with like new un- more unknown artists because it th- they're more likely to try to like a whole different like abandon like they don't have like a a, a a an image yet and so they're they they're willing to try something try something like us to use like to control to like to perform and do things like that so um, even though it won't help us as, as like if Riza used Leap Motion to do some crazy thing that we would that would be like really big for us but. Um, uh, the chances that he would are pretty small, so I think it's more in our interest to do to attach ourselves to smaller artists and like experimental people. Um, oh man, you gotta shoot for the stars! <laughs> like I gotta call with him in a couple hours. I can uh, I'll drop your name. <laughs> 
Yeah, if uh, yeah, if you can hook me up with Arisa, then I would definitely <laughs> be interested. But <laughs> um, I think I think our our techno- I mean, you do speakers, and like a lot of people need that, and that's like that's that's great. Uh, um, but we don't have that that uh, kind of global appeal yet. It's not like everybody needs Leap Motion to do some things. But we're like we're trying to establish a whole an entire new way of doing things. And so I think people who want to take take a take a really strange risk and like try this new technology is more the artists that we're uh, kind of gearing towards. Mm-hmm. Eno, lots of Eno. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Eno, and uh, well, I think uh, Bjork is another another one that would be like kind of in that uh, like she. I'm I'm a, I'm a creative coder, so like I do a lot of like. Um, Weird digital art, uh, and Bjork has been hiring a lot of. I don't. I don't know if you've seen like all the different albums, and she's and there's like apps and uh, a bunch. Of, she, uh, they've been uh, definitely supporting a lot of a lot of creative coders, and that's kind of like that's that's really great for people like me. Um, and so I think somebody who 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 was willing to take these weird risks and like put these different things. Uh, together is like kind of the artist that we'd like to work with. Cool. Morgan, can you tell us a bit about, explain a bit about bike culture for us and, and, and how that scene relates a bit to music? Because I think it's something that's obviously popular and on the rise. But, you know, it's hard to say that I've seen a lot of artists identified with bike messenger, messengers, bike culture, which is doing incredibly well right now. Yeah, I'd agree. I think there's a couple reasons for that um, you know I think cycling is such a diverse uh, activity that I mean you I mean, you could stand out here in the street and see a you know 40 year old mom and a you know 20 year old you know whatever um, and they're riding the same bike but they might not speak the same language or understand the same thing so I think it's hard for brands to kind of speak so you know so uh, and, and identify with them clearly it just takes a lot um Cycling companies specifically, I don't think do very uh, do a very great job of that. Um, mostly just because I don't think many of them are, are ultra creative, um, and that's more the hard good brands, right? You know, um, and that again is because they have such a diverse group that they're speaking to. I think the media doesn't really do a great job either of kind of like letting the world know about the the kind of what happens when you get off that bike and the culture that surrounds it. Um, and that's you know something that I think skating and, and surfing and skiing you know the, the, they do such a great job kind of building a culture around this thing and I feel like if you I mean if you say you know I'm a road cyclist you can you, you know you can probably assume that I'm a, I am a certain way and I drive a certain type of car or whatever but I, but that stuff doesn't it's not real it's not it's it's not really that way and I think you know what we intri- what we try to do it mission is just I mean we don't attach ourselves to the bike as much you know um, I mean we do to a point but we're not like a site we don't want to be like a pigeonhole as a cycling based company we just want to have you know great products that work well on on you know on all activities um, but that said we you know we love stuff like culture collide we love you know doing stuff like the the Tyco projects mm-hmm. and doing more and more of that kind of stuff so you know it's 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 a bit of it's a bit of a frustration because I feel like the culture is so rich 
on the on the cycling side, yeah. um, but it's very there's just the, the pockets and those pockets aren't being penetrated as as much as uh, as they could. But that's you know that's our job to kind of continue and and keep pushing that and and telling the media and mm-hmm. you know like you know getting getting the word out and getting uh, getting the two wheel kind of lifestyle out out in the mix yeah. in a cool looking way. That's that's the hard part, right? Like it's gotta it's gotta have this kind of style and, and cool and, and break the kind of stereotype barriers that I think we're we're always gonna be up against. Because everyone's had a bike at some point, right? So people have they feel like they, they can understand it. Where with if you're a snowboarder and you've snowboarded once you feel like you're part of this kind of mm-hmm. tribe. But you get to wear spandex. <laughs> that's the thing, right? Like, that's what one like they think Lance, they think spandex, they think Tour de France. Where, you know, I don't give a I don't give a fuck about any of that stuff, you know. And but I love, you know, I love bikes. So, yeah, you know, it can be. It's just it's so diverse. It's hard to it's hard to like really do efficiently. I think market efficiently. Is there a genre that you would say if you were to book an artist for a party at the end of a big ride or something that you would say this is this would be this is what everyone would love. Or it's just so diverse, no. it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. yeah, it depends. It really would depend, like, if, you know, if we did a party across the street at our store, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I feel like I could figure that out because San Francisco has, you know, even that 40-year-old mom has a kind of taste and a touch that's going to understand what we're going to communicate. Um, but if we were doing it in Chicago, it would be different. If we were doing it in L.A., it would be different. Florida, it would be different. So, yeah, I think you just have to kind of bend and, you know, move to 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 the area again because it is such a diverse you know thing yeah you got to get your mashup artist your mashup dj yeah right take care of everyone like yeah, right? five songs yeah. everyone's done yeah that's that's yeah it's a good idea <laughs> um we have only a little bit of time left because uh the next panel is uh the the most famous no offense in, to everyone here but the next the next panel is trying beers from around the world, uh, which is incredibly important and only comes around once a year. So um, we'll all want to stick around for that. Uh, I guess what I would ask everyone here as sort of our parting thing is to, if you could tell me one artist in 2015 that you think will have an impact on whatever genre, whatever scene it is that people should take note of and be aware of, you just have to name one that you think will be relevant next year. I know it's a hard one. That's oh, like, but we're all waiting. That's that's like one of the hardest questions. No, it's the easiest question. Ask. The hardest question <laughs> is how do you make the crazy display things work on your technology? <laughs> that's the hard question. Who were those like uh, Australian punk kids who played at like ah, seven o'clock Dune at rats. chapel? See, Dune rats. Dune rats. That's a good answer. Those kids who had to sleep on the streets last <laughs> night because they didn't have enough money for a hotel room. I'm gonna bet on see, Dune rats. See. Like that's like buying a stock. Well, it's like buying a penny stock. See? That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Dune rats. Really good. Really good. Anybody else? We, anything? Uh, I could, I'll just take a stab. I just, uh, I'm really into this band, Factory Floor, right now. And they do this really cool. I mean, it's like, I think it's more of a zeitgeist thing where you're combining like a lot of analog and digital instruments. And they've got like cool, you know. Um, but. It's a UK underground band, and I just really, yeah, I just really think what they're doing with like combining like, uh, like weird synthesis with uh, with um, with like a lot of analog instruments is like 
really interesting to me. But that's just uh, that's just one of the many bands that I am really into right now. So, all right, it's good. I'm just gonna have to say a band that I really like right now. I don't know if they're coming out with a new album or anything, but uh, uh, that kid King Cruel. Yeah, that's a good one. He, I just love his sound, and I think, I think he has the ability to have like this kind of listen. He borders this line of listenable and not listenable all at once with these great lyrics and kind of bassy beats. And I think that, like, I love that kind of equation, and I feel like that brings a different type of people together. So, King Cruel, if you're listening, we'd love to work with you. <laughs> that is a that's a great one, and yeah. I've heard that he's um, he's quite the artist. So. He releases music when he feels like it. He cancels or does tours when he feels like it. Um, but he's very much the artist, artist. Um, and I'll throw one out. I'll say we just because we just added in LA um, uh, the band uh, Mo M O Mo. She's from uh, Denmark and uh, seems to be absolutely blowing up um, in the next few months. I think she's going to be a big star soon and something that's pretty cool. So. Um, that's it. That's all we got. Thanks very much, for panelists. This was fun, and stick around for a beer. Thank you. All right. That was the Bands and Brands panel here at Culture Collide San Francisco, the Creative Summit. Um, you're listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever, broadcasting live from West of Pecos uh, for the Culture Collide Festival. Um, this is just background stuff. Um, next up, we have the Beers of the World panel. So everybody's really looking forward to that. We're going to be playing you some tunes uh, until that time. Alan Miller will again take the stage and uh, guide us through some lovely beverages. Again, if you don't know what's going on, Culture Collide is a festival that's happening here in the Valencia Corridor. It's happening at the chapel, the hipstamatic offices, and the elbow room. You're going to be able to see great bands from all over the world. Uh, just earlier today on the Crack Machine Show, I had the lovely people from Level and Tyson from Norway, all the way from Norway, uh, who are here to play for you. So um, if you didn't catch the show this morning, I definitely suggest catching them live at the chapel. They're going to be opening up the show probably around 8.30, considering one band did have some visa issues and didn't get into the country. So uh, yeah, come to the show, come early, and catch some great music. I'm your host, Ben, from the Cracked Machine, and you're listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. We're going to continue with some jams, and I'm actually playing a song specifically for Level and Tyson. They, uh, they told me that they were going to go after that Albini sound when they uh, go into their basement uh, and try to get some recordings done. So this isn't... This isn't Albini at the helm, but this is definitely the use of his mics. And that's uh, for June of 44 and a song called June Miller. Check it out. BFF.FM.
us a good solution Bargain with the raisin girls She's gone to the other side Giving us a yo-heave-ho Now things are getting kind of gross And I go at sleepy time This is not, this is not really happening You
Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. We are here live at the Culture Collide Summit in San Francisco uh, during the Creative Summit here on the Valencia Corridor at West of Pecos. We are getting ready for everybody's favorite panel, Beers of the World. That's going to get started in just a little bit here. Alan Miller, the founder of Culture Collide is going to uh, be emceeing this with a, a panel of Brewsters, if you will. Michael Sargent from Anchor Brewing. Brewing. Don Chartier. Cartier. That works. From Lagunitas. I can't even say Lagunitas right now. And I drink it. And Sayer Pichakowski from Beer and Soul. All right. I hope I murdered all those names uh, faithfully enough for, for, for the people. Sorry about that. Um, you've been listening to some music. Partially, uh, I'm a little caffeine jittery right now, Cosmic. Uh, anyways, we were listening to Dayton's Lab Partners with the song Now off their excellent album Wicked Branches. I threw everybody a little curveball there with uh, Jawbox doing a cover of Cornflake Girl, if you were wondering what that was. Uh, also in that little set, we heard uh, one of my favorites, Super Chunk, doing Detroit Has a Skyline off of their excellent Here's Where the Strings Come In album. We heard local man Kelly Stoltz doing Kimchi Taco Man. If you haven't YouTubed that, I s- totally suggest you do that. That'll kind of make your day for sure. And then we heard a uh, big, long, shoegazy song from Ride on Creation Records called Leave Them All Behind. Um, 
in just a few minutes, we're going to get started with the uh, panel. But until until that time, let me leave you with a little bit more music. This is uh, The Kills with Future Starts Slow here on BFF.FM.
Ladies and gentlemen, again, we are broadcasting live from west of Pecos during the Culture Collide San Francisco Festival. You are listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. That last track there was from Hospitality off the album Trouble, the song Inauguration. And we have here the most fantastic panel of all panels. Uh, I had done some introductions earlier for this Beers of the World pa- uh, panel, but I did leave off one name that I, uh, for- forgive me, and that's Jessica Leonard from Heineken. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the panel. Um, we've got a lot of good tastings here, it looks like. Newcastle, Carta Blanca. I will uh, leave it up to Alan Miller to uh, tell you guys the rest. So enjoy the Beers of the World panel. I hope I do. Uh, thank you very much. That's uh, a fantastic introduction. This is uh, historically my, uh, my all-time favorite panel. I think it's, uh, it's awfully important to try beers from around the world, uh, especially with this international festival. And uh, I'm greatly appreciative for all the amazing people we have on our panel today who are much more qualified than I am to talk about what makes an amazing beer. Um, so I would love it if everyone here, um, starting with Don to my right, could introduce themselves and give any kind of disclaimers that they need to and, and move forward. Hi there, my name is Don Chartier, uh, out from Lagunitas Brewing. Uh, thanks, grateful to be here, and um, I'm just here to drink the beer. Hopefully gain some information myself. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm with Heineken USA. I'm regional marketing. Um, here to learn from the craft guys. Do what they do. And I'm Dane Volick. I'm with Anchor Brewing. And I'm also here to enjoy some lovely beers from around the world. <laughs> uh, Michael Sargent, uh, marketing with Anchor Brewing. Uh, happy to be here and looking forward to trying some new beers. Uh, my name is Trevor Hill. I'm a stand-up comedian. I don't know too much about beer. So this should be, uh, this should be interesting. But I am also looking forward to you getting day drunk on a weekday. So thank you for giving me an official reason to do that, to tell my girlfriend. I'm Sarah Pietrakowski. I'm the uh, beverage director of a place in Oakland called the Hogs Apothecary. Uh, and I used to uh, be the beer director of the Monk's Kettle right around the corner here in the Mission. Wow. That, that's a lot of beer knowledge and a comedian. So that's very, that's very strong. Very strong panel. Um, we're going th- to start off here and, uh, we, as a... Uh, with a, with a very interesting Icelandic pale ale. Now, the interesting thing about this particular beer, and I'd be curious if anyone has any experience with this here, the Einstock, is that for my journeys to Iceland, I never saw this beer. So I don't know if anyone else has any uh, information on this particular beer, or we can do some trials and we can discuss. Oh, someone in the audience? Viking. Yeah, it's more like Budweiser. Ah, good to know. Good to know. Yes? I drank it once because the label was cool. It was okay. Ooh. Okay, uh, panel, this is going to be very important. uh, A very important trial. Let's see see what we think. I'm sorry, should, should anyone actually instruct us how we should be trying beers? Maybe the comedian can chime in. I recommend through the mouth. There That's probably go. the best orifice. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. 
Wow, very quiet on the Einstock. If you don't have anything good to say, is that? Um, what would you like us to, to talk about? How's the, how's, how are the hops? How's it smell? I mean, if you want me to do the real deal, uh, it's a little undercarbonated. Uh, it's definitely underbitted for the style if it's supposed to be a pale ale. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that it probably does not market itself as a pale ale at home, but recognizing market forces here, it's trying to market itself as a pale ale. Um, but a, a, even, even the sort of uh, flabbiest of pale ales should be a little more rigidly bittered and it'll have a little more hop flavor. That's what I was going to say, too. Yeah, I actually, he wrote that. He wrote that down. I read it off his paper. But it's expensive in Iceland. What does that tell us about Iceland breweries? What do we think? Do they not know how to make a pale ale? I'm not an expert on Iceland. Oh, okay. And my guess is no. My guess is there's plenty of people anywhere in the world that know how to make a pale ale. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that's the one thing pale they're not an expert on. <laughs> I think it's, it's a fairly nondescript yeast profile to it. So the middle, it, while it is a little undercarbonated, the, uh, the mouthfeel and the body makes it a little bit creamier. Um, the hop profile may have been there earlier. There was a little oxidization early on. Uh, spinning that around, open that up a little bit. I was trying there's to be nice. Not, yeah, there's not a whole lot of uh, aromatics in there that possibly could have been there earlier. Yeah. Um, but it's just overall, there's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's more of a middle beer. There's not really that beginning sharpness. There's not the nice sweet finish. But the middle is, is there. Yeah, I mean, it, I think we may run into that quite often tonight, and that's something that's actually rather informative. Um, we're probably going to run into a fair amount of beers that are coming from around the world with signs of staling. Um, it's sort of unavoidable when you're bringing beers from around the world, unless they came in somebody's suitcase. Well, are, we, are, are most of these international beers just in general going to be more of a lighter pale ale or a lighter pilsner-y kind of? No. No. That's just specific to the one we tried. Well, I mean, the... There, I don't, there was nothing pilsnery about this beer. It just was. Uh, I guess I mean it's sort of more of a it's more of a lighter or a less bold tasting. I'd say so. For what we're accustomed to here in America, especially you know here on the West Coast, the beers are a lot hoppier. They're a lot more pronounced. Um, uh, the European market is definitely coming around. Uh, the past couple of years, they've actually started importing aroma hops, which they haven't done ever. So, um, well, we think that our beers, you know, we took from. Europe or whatever, and started addressing them to how we like them, uh, upping everything Americans, you know, as we're apt to do. Everything's bigger and better and more. So they're actually adopting that and bringing it back over to Europe. And a lot of the beers uh, that they're making now are trying to emulate West Coast and you know. American Absolutely, beers. yeah. That's what I was going to say. Is I, I actually have had the opposite experience as I go around the world. When I go around the world, uh, I mean, I can say I just, I just, uh, the best brewer in Italy stayed at my house last last two months ago, and the only place he wanted to go was Lagunitas. Um, the breweries that are getting emulated around the world are the guys that, like, I, you know, have opened in my lifetime in this country. Lagunitas, Dogfish Head, Stone have massive influence, uh, certainly in Italy, uh, certainly in Scandinavia, South, uh, South America. You're seeing a lot more of, you know, what, what we would probably claim as, as, you know, the sort of post-anchor influence uh, in, in really, Cal- like, west coast of the United States is kind of influencing beer all over the world right now. Wow, look at us. Um, so we're going to move on to another interesting one here. This is the, the Kuskena. This is the 100% malt lager. Jeff, where, where did you get this one from? Where, where did we say this one is from? It's from Peru. K- Korea? <laughs> uh, from Peru. Anyone know anything about beer from Peru? Uh, these guys actually, they're, they're big there, but they make a dark lager that's actually quite good if you can find it not stale. Mm. Uh, and I believe that all malt claim is actually true. 
Um, a lot of uh, these beers were that you sort of had this ex this fluctuation of expatriates from Eastern Europe that ended up all over South and Central America, trying to recreate the beers of their homeland, and uh, it was very difficult to to get enough brewing malts. So you started seeing adjuncts like corn and all these other things included, and they sort of degraded these styles. Um, but some of them some of them are actually quite good, and they're usually a, a pale lager like this, and then they'll make what they call a dark lager that's really only sort of amber in color. This sounds to me like this is kind of a beer you could probably drink a lot of. I mean, if I mean, I think that's good. <laughs> I like to drink a lot of something. Not not a great smell. What's that? Yeah. All right. Well, since we all held back so much on the last beer, do we want to uh, repeat do any, any any consistencies in this? That, uh, come on. I mean, I, I'm just going to come off like a dick, but <laughs> uh, maybe too late. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 pretty brutally oxidized. So, what? Tell me about the that process. What what, what makes it brutally oxidized? Exposure to oxygen um, and time. So, time is the main factor. Uh, heat as well, and so a lot of these things that come over on boats, mm. even if they're kept cold on the ship, clearing customs, they'll sit on a dock uh, and, you know, in a container get really warm, and that speeds up mm-hmm. the staling process. Um, in terms of the way it tastes to you, uh, you know, you'll smell something like wet paper, and it can actually taste a little, like, if you ever put a piece of binder paper in your mouth because you are bored in elementary school, you'll get that kind of palate sensation. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> And it, and it should should be resonating in this glass. Mm. Yes. Yeah, micro-oxidation, exactly. So it, it, you're saying, so is there a way to avoid that happening with the big Drink boats? your beer fresh. So what if you wanted a really good beer from Cusco? Go to Cusco. <laughs> in America. Get the recipe, make it here. So I mean, that's, that's as absurd a question of, like, they make the best bread in the world in France. How come we don't fly French bread across the fucking Atlantic Ocean and serve it in restaurants here? Because you can make it here. So the answer is not to order it on Amazon. And <laughs> over here. All right. I think, I think the point about the, the malt profile on this, and then we kind of snickered about it when he said it was 100% malt-based, because everything that we're drinking over here is malt-based. I mean, that's what we use, but... Uh, American loggers, American, you know, they're using adjuncts, that rice, that corn. So to have this industrial stylish lager being 100% malt based is it definitely that sweetness carries on. It doesn't have that dry crispness that a lot of those loggers would have anyway. So as much as the, the oxidation is there a little bit, it is that that that. Well, and I'll tell you, I've had I've had bottles of the dark that I really like. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, now we move on to a local beer. You want? You, could you explain? This is a this is an anchor beer. Yes, we'd love our, to hear uh, about this. This is our Zymaster number six. We do a few of these a year, one time release. This is the Sarema Islandale. It's all pale malt base, and then it's got a, an indigenous Estonian yeast that our our head brewmaster Mark Carpenter brought back from Estonia on a recent trip with him, and we experimented with it a little bit. Pretty nice, uh, all northern brewer hops. Let's see what everybody thinks. Can you expound a little more about an indigenous, indigenous Estonian yeast? 
Yeah, it was. He was on one of the islands off the coast, and and apparently the only beer that he liked there, they had this this yeast that they allowed him to take with him, and we uh, we had White Labs grow it up for us, and, and we pitched it in, and this is what we got. Sweet, so, yeah, because I, I have tasted this beer, and it, it it plays a lot like a Belgian strain. It does. It's okay. very Belgian. All right. It's got a lot of the clove aromas. And but he has no idea where they got it. I don't think he knows really huh. where they got it. So is that is that something you can sort of do now? Is you can kind of go and to crazy islands and try to find <laughs> yeasts and hops and is that the next level? I think it's a level. Yeah, <laughs> it's one thing you can do. I don't know of a whole lot of people doing that. That this is this is a little original. Yeah. You say this was the yeast that was found there? Correct. Wow. So most breweries will have a house yeast. Yeah. So Mark, the head brewer, sort of legendary figure behind Anchor, tasted a beer he dug, inquired about it, and they'd allowed him to take a pitch of their yeast. And then White Labs is a, a, a yeast bank, essentially, one of the most important companies in craft beer. And they uh, take that piece and grow it up in a lab to, to a size that you can use to make a batch of beer. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so without us having to travel around the world and find those specific yeast strains, you can call White Labs or White Yeast, and you're looking at these profiles you like for your beer, whether it's bubblegum or tobacco or horse blanket or what have you. You can call these yeast banks and go, give me these profiles, and they just they have it. You know, from maybe a couple cells, maybe whatever, but they can grow it up to whatever commercial batch size you'd like to pitch that. So he said yeast is kind of the, the soul of the beer. Like we were saying, you know, every brewery kind of has its profile. And um, when, when a brewery steps outside their, their normal yeast strain, you really get a lot of different things. You still have a lot of the same malts and what have you, hops. But by changing that, that yeast strain, you're completely changing the profile and the, the essence of your beer. Oh. Well, yeah, was, from the guy over here that doesn't, uh, doesn't have all that information, I think it tastes really good. Like, I quite enjoy this one. I think this is oxidized properly. No, it, it would not be oxidized. That's, that's the proper level of oxidation. Properly. Um, do you, are you able to pull anything like bubblegum or banana if you just stick your nose over it? Yes. So yes. that's when, when we say, like, when I said that beer is, that yeast strain plays Belgian-like, that's sort of that, that signature. The other yeast strain where you would catch uh, that aroma and that flavor would be a Hefeweizen. Um, but they're, 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 it's a it's a aroma and a flavor that's produced when yeast are reproducing themselves. Um, so it's a yeah, it's called an ester. If anybody wants to get super geeky on it, but I think that if I had to blind this beer in a panel and I didn't know that it was a, I didn't know of an Estonian strain, I would probably peg it as being Belgian. Well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, Belgians know something about beer. Do they do some good things? Sure. Yeah. Great. Before the fall of the Soviet Union, Estonians didn't even have yeast. So that's, that's one of the nice things about the fact we won the Cold War is this delicious beer right here. Right. So this would be actually be a good example of saying, don't, be, don't ship in this stuff over from Estonia if they were using that. Make it here and... It's like I put the beers fresh. in order, man. Fresh. See? What do you know? Look what we're learning today. It's very difficult being on an import being from an import on a craft panel because hearing you guys talk about local craft and local beer my whole basis of our business is bringing the Amsterdam fresh very fresh Heineken to USA so it's really interesting to hear your perspective on it and what makes a beer good and how you're saying beer does not travel that is what I'm saying yes I'm sorry no that's okay that's well fair. but how well, many of those but there are there are some that are brewed locally right are any of the Heineken products brewed locally? No, all of our Heineken USA portfolio products are brewed where we say. So Newcastle is brewed 
in England, Tecate is brewed in Tecate, Mexico. So how do we solve for the oxidation problem? I don't want to turn this into like a Heineken USA like commercial um, by any means, but we have some new technology that we're bringing to the market, uh, specifically for a draft beer, because that's where we see the most decline in uh, taste profile and where we see our beer essentially go bad between Heineken and Newcastle. So we have new technology called Brewlock that protects our beer from light, air, any um, insertion of gas in order to propel the beer through the draft system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same way you would, if you were a dairy, you know, you, you, you get more efficient in your, in your distribution, you, you know, and, and so on and so on. And, and uh, packaging is a huge thing. I, uh, uh, I imagine Lagunitas and Anchor spend a lot of time thinking about how to minimize oxidation at packaging, or minimize oxygen on the beer at packaging. Um, so it, there's, all thi- there's a bunch of things you can do. Uh, the simplest thing being drink fresh beer. Yeah. Again, if you have the, the best beer in the world, if you put in a bottle that has... You know, two two million part, you know, two parts per billion of oxygen in there. You're going to oxidize that beer in a matter of weeks, you know, if not days. So, getting that oxygen out of the bottle is is key, and keeping those kegs purged of oxygen is is everything, and that really helps shelf life. Again, with uh, storage. And for the record, the Heinekens we've been drinking today taste fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> They're very very fresh. Fabulous, fabulous. So, is there any technology? Is it, or is that on the forefront of technology to try to change? I would say that there's, there's new technologies all the time that are, people are, are trying more and more. I mean, I just did a side-by-side of a, a brewery fresh and a six-month-old Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, and it was rather impressive, you know. Um, most of the breweries I work with on my level, if their beer is six-month-old, it's a, it's a train wreck. You know, if it's three-months-old, it's a train wreck. So, uh, you know, my solution to the problem would be to source directly and source locally, but, you know, there are places where you can't do that, and there are companies that want to sell their product around the world, so absolutely, there's, there's innovation on that front, and there's people who are better at it than others. Um, I think Sierra Nevada and Lagunitas are, in the craft segment, really good in terms of packaging. You tour that new Lagunitas plant, it's like a motherfucking Starship Enterprise. <laughs> you know? Not a joke. I mean, it's, it's technologically advanced. Engage. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, it's also, there's new technology, whether it's vacuum pumps to suck air out of these bottles or nitrogen that they used to use all the time to get oxygen out of cans to, um, but it's really just as simple as getting a shot of water in that bottle and exciting the CO2 that's in the beer, have that foam up and push that, the CO2 will push air out of the bottle. So you can use the beer to help protect itself too. All right. So speaking of Lagunitas, so this next beer we're going to try is, is the, the old, the Lagunitas sucks. Tell us about this. I mean, the one thing you always notice, it seems, when you open up one of these is what it smell, the smell, is the hops. Yeah, well, um, this is a double IPA we did a couple years ago. It's about 8% in alcohol. Um, again, yeah, our beers are definitely, most of our beers are very hop forward. It's an aggressive dry hopping process we use at the brewery. Um, again, I still get our yeast, you know, in the taste of the baseline of the beer. But um, we just, we just, I say we overutilize and underutilize, overuse and underutilize our hops. We dump a, a buttload of hops in. Um, post fermentation, but before conditioning, get a lot of those uh, aromatics out of the out of the hops, but get them get those hops off the beer before they become uh, resiny. Kind of a tacky resin flavor profile comes out of the beer. Uh, we don't really want that, so it's a lot of hops in there. Boom, get those aromatics off, and then turn it down and crash it down, and hopefully capture those aromatics, and they come through. Hopefully, the next time the bottle opens up. Yep. Um, can you tell the Lagunitas suck story? Because I want to be mad at you. Um, well, we've got a few minutes here. Um, basically, the sucks goes back to uh, a failed batch of gnarly wine, where years ago we did a beer that um, 
our, our barley wine style ale didn't do very well. Oh, I'm sorry, it did great. We, uh, a home, oh my god, home brewer, our, one of our original brewers was a home brewer. Brought in his homebrew recipe for gnarly wine. 200 pounds of honey in that recipe. Next year they went to go recreate it. Forgot the honey, hence uh, we dumped in a bunch of brown sugar. That became our. Uh, a brown sugar beer that we first terrible through. hangover of my life when I was it's, 15 years old. Yeah, it, it, 15. Yeah, I'm from Petaluma, <laughs> man. I, 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 you had a friend by that, right? Absolutely. You, that, that was not picked up. That was not picked up at the brewery. Absolutely not from the place across Phoenix Theater. Yes. So, uh, so a brown Seven sugar line. recipe for five years. Uh, we came up against capacity issues several years ago, and just the sheer process of lottering or getting the sugar off the grain for that beer takes such a long time. We couldn't make enough beer to. You know, to fill the pipeline of our core brands. So um, Tony, our owner, does all of our labels, does all of our uh, recipe designs, got out in front of it and said, you know, hey, we grew too fast. We can't make the beer you like this winter, so we're going to make this other beer. Hopefully you like it, but we suck. We grew too fast. We're sorry. <laughs> we suck. So fortunately, we made this really nice beer. Jeremy Marshall, Ed Brewer, actually came up with a recipe for this one. And, uh, yeah, again, we're able to get out in front of that nightmare of not making the brown sugar. And came up with a pretty good beer that's now available year-round because we drink it so much. Good. Great story. Anybody have any uh, comments on this? Smells good? Tastes good? Awesome. Just awesome. In, terms, in terms of freshness, if you have any of the other beers around still, you, you want to contrast, like, what that's lacking is that oxidation element. Like, the, the, the liveliness, the mouthfeel. There's a lushness to the mouthfeel. There's vibrant aromas coming out of there. So, you know, the... the the easiest analogy for, for freshness, and especially in the context of a, a music-centric thing like this, is, you know, a, a, a fresh beer is like listening to live music. A relatively fresh beer might be like, you know, listening at home on some really good headphones, and then a stale beer is kind of like trying to listen to that same track on iPod headphones. You know what I mean? And, it, and there's just that degradation um, is something that you see. As I say, I imagine if we traveled to Iceland or we traveled to Cusco, we'd, we'd encounter something very different in those imports. Yeah. That's and, and I think you know another little, nice little tie-in with music. Uh, our owner Tony uh, studied music composition, and he thinks about beer the same way as music, where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end in a beer, and it's a composition. And you know, there's so many different parts to play out. And the story of a brewery is really like a, you know a sonnet or a, like a full story with beginning, middle, and ends. And there's ups and downs. So it enters your body, whether it enters through your mouth, through your ears, it goes to your brain. It creates a very visceral experience. And so you know, when he went from from uh, music to beer, it was, to him, it was a very natural transition. I feel so stupid. Like this. <laughs> uh, we have a Russian beer next. Um, yeah. So um, this was brewed locally uh, in the East Bay. <laughs> the East Bay? The East Bay. Uh, it's called, uh, Jeff, would you read us the label, please? That's pretty obvious. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Trebekako, yeah. the old Hell's Schnag beer. Yeah, yeah, top one. Yeah. So, since we're probably going to have some sort of an oxidation issue, <laughs> <laughs> just, just throwing it out there. Um, how about if we compare this to the others and say, is there a, is this better or worse? than the other ones. I mean, this is coming from Russia. This one's come on boats and trains and UPS and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's been in transit since 1985. <laughs> exactly, yes. 
Ooh, that's that's gonna be true. Yeah, I mean this is actually this is good. This, this does show the, the difference pretty quickly to what a fresh beer and not fresh beer is. And again, it also comes down to an ale versus a lager yeast type. I mean, this is you know it has that lager smell to it. It's not just the oxidization. It really is a totally different profile. Well, does this actually say shunk beer on it? Did somebody smuggle this? Because shunk beers aren't usually exported. Shunk beers are very low in alcohol. May I see the label? Whoa, whoa. Oh. Shunk beer. It says... <laughs> I could have made that up. So, that's not usually how I see it spelled, but obviously I don't speak Ukrainian <laughs> or Russian. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. Does anyone else have know about that? For me, shunk, shunk beer is like... is. Eastern European for like session beer, like the the, the, the the lowest alcohol level, you know, just you know, just kind of the simplest thing. And typically, those that's the antithesis of what's exported. You'll see triple X or export or other words to connote stronger, more durable beers for export. So this could be kind of a, a you know, regardless of, of freshness, kind of something you don't normally see in the states. I I don't if, see if only, too much. If only we had the internet in here. Does anyone know shunk beer? Shunk. Yeah, look up this specific beer and see. They may just be using the term or whether it's actually like 2% alcohol. (laughs) Give her the (laughs) But it actually, it tastes tastes pretty damn mineral watery. My guess is that's a really low alcohol beer. It's 4%. Oh, it is 4. Oh, yeah, that's actually like, but but like traditional shrunk beer, to my understanding, again, this is entirely just from reading, is like 2.5. It's like the the small, small beer type of deal. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So I think we can move off Russia. I'm sort of wanting to try a little bit more of the maybe the Anchor or maybe perhaps a Lagunitas brew since, uh, you know, I don't... Uh, listen, I think daytimes... What's that we got? Liberty? No, we can bring Liberty. Now, I'm very interested in... Yeah, I'm very interested in, the, in these different, uh, these Anchor beers because um, I live in L.A. and we generally, it's very hard to find anything than these then if you can find Anchor, it's the straight traditional Anchor. So we just had the crazy, the crazy one with the crazy yeast, which was great. So can you tell us a little bit about this one, how this maybe came about, and sort of how the portfolio is changing? Yeah, so this is our California lager. Uh, it's a beautiful label. I really enjoy the label a lot. It's borrowed. Uh, it's one of the contenders for the original flag, California flag. It's an east-facing there. But what it is, is it's a classic lager, so we keep it in the cellar a little bit longer, lager it properly. <coughs> same, same yeast as, as Anchor Steam, um, so it, it is a lager yeast. And then we use, it's all California ingredients, cluster hops, one of the original hops grown in the area. And we tried to resurrect a recipe from a, what's called a Boca Brewery, which is one of the first lager breweries we could find in the history of California. And uh, so we tried to kind of mimic that a little bit and, and just explore what our yeast could do in a lagering environment, uh, try to nail the carbonation, get that nice, fine bubble, try wow. something that, that's I think a little we, different for us. I think it would be cool. Could you explain, because you're talking about using your lager yeast in a lager tradition, which is not what Anchor is, sure. but you want to explain that to the folks? Because I think it's awesome. Yeah, so the lager and ale yeast are kind of the two, the two strains of, of yeast, or two different species. They, they behave a little bit differently. They have a slightly different sugar profile that they consume, work under different environments. 
So our, our anchor steam is a, it's classic lager yeast, but we ferment it more at an ale temperature, and we ferment it in these big, giant cool ships that I'm sure some people have seen. Uh, and that keeps the, the, the liquid is a little bit thinner. It's not like a traditional like conical fermenter or something that's nice and deep. It's nice and shallow, so it does kind of keep the yeast. The lager yeast will usually operate lower down uh, versus an ale yeast will, will operate higher up in, in the liquid. So it kind of mimics, it's like a hybrid of the two. And so then this is that same yeast, but then we do ferment it in the pans, same as, as Anchor Steam. But then in the cellar, we drop it down a little bit, a little bit sooner, still a little more active than Anchor Steam, and then we finish it in the cellar at a colder temperature, more like a proper lager. Um, so then this is kind of a hybrid of Anchor Steam with a lager, kind of pushing it more in that direction. But um, you, do, you, you do pitch at the same temp as Anchor Steam? Correct. Yeah. So explain, so is, was the... All local, different things. Now, was was the the intent to find a way to to reproduce what beer was a hundred years ago? Yeah, that was a part of it. Uh, and also, you know, we love we've got a relationship with the parks with this beer. We donate some of the proceeds to the California State Parks and Rec. So that's why we tied the flag in, the bear in, uh, and, and the Boca Brewery history. Uh, but it was something fun and something that we thought uh, people would enjoy. Kind of taking a beer and making it a little more simple. Uh, maybe a starter beer for some of the people that are into uh, into lighter beers and wanting to get into something like an Anchor Steam. This is kind of a, a step in the right direction in that regard. Wow. It's very cool. I think it's very interesting to hear how, I mean, like you're saying, if you're going to pull local ingredients of all the different things and try to recreate something that was 100 years ago, how, how would people's palates even change in 100 years you know, to, to something that was still consistent that people would really like? Yeah, I had a conversation with a guy in uh, New York who made the the oldest pizza place in New York, and he was saying it's the same recipe we've had for 150 years, but if you had it 100 years ago, you would couldn't even eat it. Like you just, it's the, just the actual natural ingredients around you have changed so much that even though the recipe is the same, it's totally different, and you, it's so gradual that you don't necessarily notice it. You know, over your lifetime. Yeah, and we and we did play with the the bittering hops with this beer quite a bit, and how bitter did we want to go? I'm sure this is more bitter than what originally Boca Brewery was was making at the time, uh, but we wanted to make it a little craftier, something that people would identify as as a beer uh, from the area. Great, great. Anybody? Any other? Any comments on this one, other than delicious? It's really good. What What is it about? Drinking more than five Anchor Steam that makes me resent my father. Is that something in the brewing process? <laughs> I know nothing about that. <laughs> I'm afraid it goes deeper than that. All right. We're moving on to, thank God, another Lagunitas. So this is, the, this is daytime, and I don't know what it is about daytime. Don, you're going to have to help me with this. I, this, is, this is the beer that I obviously can drink during the day consistently, but I feel like it just has the perfect parts of everything that I like, um, and I can drink it at all times. Awesome. Well, without <laughs> knowing what you like to do during the day, I know uh, at the brewery we like to drink, and we only have a whole lot of bars put on us for what time we can and cannot drink. So um, drink a lot of high-alcohol beers. You know, you obviously can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning, and so we do that. Um, so to get you through the day, um, our tagline when we first did this uh, daytime, which is our session ale, uh, it was for, you know, brewed for when you got shit to do. Uh, that became stuff to do to when you got things to do during the day. Um, 
but yeah, again, it's our it's our house yeast. It's got our kind of our baseline profile. Um, it's got a really big, nice citra hop. Is the, the one of the new hop uh, profiles been around for a couple years that we really showcase in that beer. Um, it's just kind of the way the pendulum's been swinging. You know, it's from IPAs to imperials to sours to you know where does where is the the brewing or the the, you know, the people who want to drink beer, what do they want to drink right now? And it's it's getting back to the session beers where people can have three or four and go out and not get shit housed. So um, yeah, we're we're one of many breweries that are doing a session right now. Again, like like this Russian beer we're having, you know, which that's four percent. This is about four six. Um, you know, hugely different in beers, but the alcohols are you know somewhat within range. And, and what is it? I mean, it, I mean, obviously the hops are incredibly prominent. Is that is that something that you go into every one of these brews, is, is, or or it's the point where how defined does it need to be? Is it like is there a big tune up? There's always a tune up. <laughs> Pretty much before every mash, and we're tuning up. But um, yeah, no, it's just kind of really we're we're responding to what people want to drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of putting it out there. We do a lot of uh, our season beers. Well, it's a give a chance to you know, our session seasonal beers. Give us a chance to showcase new new ideas in 22 ounce bottles. If they do well, we'll move them into six packs. Um, and this one just kind of proved itself early on in the festival season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people we were wondering if people would you know pay a, a, a premium price for a, a lower alcohol beer. Um, you know, I always told mom, you know, I drink it for the taste, mom. It's not for the alcohol. And <laughs> now I can tell her that that's true. You know, people will pay you know a premium price or a you know a craft price for a lower alcohol beer if the flavor's there. And um, I think that's what's happening. Yep. Oh, <laughs> well, I think I don't know. I think we're all, for the most part, getting the ingredients we want right now. Um, and like I was saying, you know, the, the pendulum swings: stouts to Belgians to sours to what have you. So. You know, we're, we're going to make what's selling. We're going to make what we want to drink first. Uh, fortunately, people are drinking and want to buy what we're making. Um, but, yeah, we're just, you know, you feed the hot hand. And if people are wanting sessions, we'll make a session and see how it does. Um, I would say the answer is different depending on the brewery. I think Lagunitas is one uh, both just sort of for the soul of who you guys are, but also for your own brand equity. Like, Lagunitas has a signature. There are other breweries uh, who do try to, like, oh, this is the new thing, let's do one of those. Like, when Lagunitas IPA hit the market, it was by far the most flavorful bitter beer anybody had ever been confronted with. And then it was, like, this arms race to the most obnoxiously bitter and intense beer you could find. And so a lot of people are sort of... are, are, are trying to, like, work on Lagunitas' territory. Uh, and so I would say for them... And, and for, this guy. for other breweries too, right? Like, like there, there's certain people who do what they do, and they they kind of have their house signature. And you know, like I can tell Lagunitas beer in my sleep. You know what I mean? Like it, it has a stamp. There's a lot of other craft brews who I do think are a little more market influenced. Who are like, okay, you know, like that. That's what people want right now. Let's try one of those, or or even just like whim influence. Like that seems like a kooky idea, you know. Rather than considering like, is this something people will understand coming from us? Um, and I think you find that in all creative endeavors, right? Like. There's people who are driven by, like, that might be fun to try, and people who are like, well, what do we do? Well, specifically with regard to these, this 
sort of category of hop. There is these new hops. Some people call them flavor hops. A lot of them are coming from the Southern Hemisphere. Citra does not. Citra comes from here. Uh, there's another one called Mosaic that's very similar. They are allowing, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, to do to do beers with less hop bitterness and lower gravity and lower impact that still have a great deal of hop character and the aroma and the flavor. So that is a trend. But you could also argue, because, because brewers have a, a reciprocal relationship with hop growers, right? So they're, they're sitting here saying, hey, you know, like, what about something with a little less alpha acid content and a little more beta but still smells like one of these old school West Coast hops? You know, and so... So it's difficult to say whether it was a market force first or it's not like the hop growers exist in a vacuum and are coming out with new hybrids just because they think it's a cool idea. You know, they're they're paying attention to what brewers want and what brewers are paying attention to what they want, both from their own sort of like, this might be cool or like it seems like the market wants this. You know, so it's obviously both and to varying degrees, depending on the the hop grower or the brewer or, or whatever sort of purveyor you're talking about. And the hop breeding program, I mean, it's amazing what these guys are doing and how they're cross-pollinating these, these hops and coming up with new hop varieties. Um, you know, it takes three, four years to really get a hop. You, you can cross-pollinate, you can grow seeds, but these seeds are not going to be identical to the, to the male and female plant. Um, so to grow these, grow these hops, these rhizomes, to punish them with mildew, with heat, bugs, to see if they are, they're okay, before you can get them out in the field and grow them to even see what the flavor profile is, You've invested so much time into these these plants, um, and then once you find one that hits, that's got whatever profile you think is good, you know they're not necessarily necessarily starting off as like I want something that tastes like juicy fruit, but they find one that tastes like juicy fruit, and they're like, oh my god, this is the one. Let's let's take that mother plant and start creating plants off that, and then grow those up. So these plants are are registered, they're trademarked down to their DNA once they're created. So um, these hop farmers are just kind of not really shooting, you know, just. But they're they're really they're they're di- kind of dictated on what the plant is growing for them and what they can do with those plants that they create, but then have to nurture to see which ones are really going to take off. And that's you know these these profiles are not necessarily trying to engineer blueberry hops, but they're finding them. You know, and just the more the more the cross pollination happens, the more these new varieties are coming out. And again, it is a lot more um, be- uh, uh, essential oil or beta based than the alpha with that strong bitterness. So again, our profiles are definitely more of those aromatic hops that they're coming up with. These, you know, these guys are amazing. Uh, Jason Peralt and some other guys are just making new hops that kick ass. And that's another place where you can talk about us influencing the world. Um, the I, I had a Duval with mosaic hops in it last night, you know, and Duval being like the classic, you know, you would think like Coca-Cola level brand uh, within Belgian Golden Ale. It would never change. And then they're now putting out this series with different. Southern Hemisphere and West Coast aroma hops in it. Um, also, you're seeing, in terms of the crossbreeding, you're seeing German breeders take American-grown rhizomes and crossbreed them with German ones. And the, the sort of conventional wisdom throughout my time in beer has been that, like, the best-smelling, most precise, most beautiful hops are the noble hops in Germany. And now they're willing to sort of corrupt those lines, in a sense, or improve those lines, depending on your perspective, to try to get some of this more... Uh, loud West Coast character into the hops that they're growing. So it's definitely another place where you see the influence of what's happened, started by Anchor, amplified by Alaganitas, uh, in this part of the world, running roughshod over the, in- the entire beer world. Uh, did you have a question there?
<laughs> I would say it's modernity. It's the same time we forgot about everything else. There was, there was, there was, good, there was good local beer in this country made by people who gave a shit. Uh, then we had Prohibition. The only people who could really survive that uh, were larger entities. Uh, I mean, if you go back and read about Adolphus Bush, the dude's crazy. Like, the dude, like, like people were laughing at him when he was like, I'm going to sell beer all over this country. They're like, what are you talking about? That, that would literally be like today being like, I'm going to sell my bread all over this country. I'm going to bake it in one place and sell it all over this country. And people were like, you're fucking crazy. We're not worried about you. Industrial Revolution. He's allowed to put it on rail cars. Like, it, I mean, it, you know, all the same things that ruined coffee, that ruined bread, that ruined, you know, fucking everything with modernity ruined beer too. And then you have this sort of reawakening process that begins around food, you know, and around beer with, with Anchor. Literally, Anchor's the first. Like, I'm not just, I don't keep dropping their name because they're here. Like, they started this shit. And uh, you have that sort of reawakening around the same time. You know, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, this is the rise of the slow food movement. The awakening that, like, that having something that's the same all over the place isn't a good thing. It's an antiseptic and shitty thing. And... And I, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there, there, are, there are all kinds of little interesting stories within that. Um, Did like Jimmy Carter like lift a ban on microbrews or something like that? In the, on homebrewing, home which, home which there are people, there are ver- people who would tell you that had varying levels of influence yeah. on the sort of microbrew revolution. But it certainly stands to reason if somebody can practice at home, it helped. Now, how many people were doing that illegally, anyways? Yeah, you know, th- there were some, but uh, but certainly Ken Grossman, who started Sierra Nevada. Um, uh, I mean, shit, anybody, you know, put, plug the name in here. They started as homebrewers, and so that, that's an excellent contribution. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we got um, two more beers to try real quick, and we'll start wrapping it up. Uh, the first one here is a dark German beer. I believe it's called Achtung Oxidation. No, Kostritzer. Kostritzer, <laughs> right, right. So uh, should we just move on or anything? Anything? No, I mean, and, and also... Finding oxidation or finding a flaw in a beer is not the end of your engagement with it. Oh. You know what I mean? It, I just, uh, I have my set of biases against those things, and I think they're sort of absurd to have in beer because beer is something that should be easy and on hand and fresh. But uh, still pl- this beer is still plenty interesting. This beer, I mean, Drake's just put out a beer called Dark Matter this week, hmm. absolutely based on copying this beer because the brewer loves this beer so much. So. Wow. There's there's value to be taken from tasting everything, even even you know something that you find Again, pretty this vile. This is a very dry, roasty beer. This is not oxidized. Yeah, it this is a rather thing. durable beer for yeah, shipping. Yeah, a little lower in body, but uh, yeah, the flavor is great for a, you know porter style or a little thin, but uh, the flavor's there. Yeah, and it should be uh, by style. This is technically a Schwarz beer, which yeah, is a black beer, a, a black lager. Um, from, a, from the northern part of Germany that's kind of like dry and refreshing but black in color. It's one of the more interesting beers to try with your, with your eyes blindfolded. People will make like certain assumptions based on the aroma and different ones based on the palate. Um, one of the things I often say to customers is color tells you very little about a beer and it can bias you really easily. So you look at this beer and you're like, oh shit, that's going to be super heavy. You're like, actually, nah, man, I play softball while drinking this. You know? So uh, I, dark, dark, really drinkable dark beers are some of my personal favorite beers. So... Uh, you know, that, that, okay. Yeah. Well, that on that note, we go to a brown, a Anchor Brown. Can you tell us a little bit about, about this beer here? This will be our final beer for the tasting today. Yes, yeah, so we have Breckel's Brown here. Uh, we'll go back to those citras again, those beautiful citras that we tasted in the all day. 
Um, that's the only hop that we use in this beer. We dry hop it and we bitter and aromatize the beer with, with those as well. So that's all you'll taste in this beer. It's, I really like it. It's a non-traditional brown, ultra hoppy, in my opinion, for a brown, especially aromatically. Um, but we've got some beautiful darker malts in there. So it, it is a nice transition here. Um, and playing along with the other beers pretty well. <laughs> Thoughts on the brown? Do we like it's it's obviously fresh, delicious. Y'all getting all the beers you need out there? Browns? Brown? Everybody Jeff, beer they need? Jeff, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> These people are they're very thirsty out there. Jeez, come on, come on. <sighs> Is it, <laughs> is, is there any historic elements of brown that we should be talking about that we need to know? Where did this come from? Uh, well, the Breckel's brown, for us, Bre- Gottlieb Breckel was our very first brewmaster that we can track down in history. So it was, it was a beer that Mark Carpenter created as one of the last beers that he would create uh, in his time with Anchor. So it was kind of that throwback, but also current marriage between brewmasters uh it's it's an intri- it's a really interesting beer I'd, I'd like to hear what other people have to say about it i was interested to hear, you bitter with citra on this oh yeah it's all you citra. just 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 throwing money out the car while you're driving down the freeway <laughs> just like fuck it we got money like that um that's a very boutique hop that i know a lot of small brewers that would love so when you use a hop as a bittering hop, conventional wisdom is that that doesn't tri- contribute much character to the beer. Do you find that, that this beer belies that conventional wisdom? I think so. Yeah? I mean, I think a lot... Of, I, I really like a lot of the bittering hops that we use, and, and I find a lot of them aren't 